Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? We're doing, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. We have uh, a good show, some somber stuff to talk about. The first thing we're going to talk about is the, the floods that have swept through southeastern Kentucky, huge devastation, massive property damage, and significant loss of life. We'll be going over the details of what happened. You know, who's impacted, ways to help, and what comes next, uh, both in the government level and, and just for the folks that are down there. So want to talk about that. Um, more bad news. The abortion ban was upheld on the appellate level, uh, which is a, a change. It had uh, been kind of uh, stayed at the, the district court level, the lower court level. And uh, Jasmine's going to talk to us about the details there. Um, so that's what we're talking about on uh, the first part of the show today. But we also have a great interview with Kelly Jones, who's running for house in District 68. Kelly Jones, she was great. I really enjoyed talking to her. She seems like a very dynamic candidate. She seems like she has a, a real grip on her district in terms of like what, what it is. She's running in Northern Kentucky. We're taking our tour of Northern Kentucky. This is week two. So she's in Fort Thomas, which is in Eastern Campbell County. Um, her district kind of runs along the Ohio River from Fort Thomas down to the Campbell Pendleton County border, if you, if you know where that is. So Jasmine, what did you think about the interview we had with Kelly Jones? I really enjoyed it. She is really knowledgeable about a lot of healthcare issues. And, you know, I learned a lot there. And then she's also running just like a really pro woman campaign. And yeah. I really enjoyed what she had to say. Yeah, definitely. I mean, whenever we talk to her about issues, I mean, it was great because she could say, like, I support this issue, but then also backed it up with a reason from her life about why it's important to her or, or why she thinks, you know, it, it's important to people in her district, uh, which I thought was really powerful and, and really great stuff. So, yeah, definitely you should stick around and check that out. Um, yeah, I, I would really encourage that. So without any further ado, let's talk about let's talk about these floods. All right, Jasmine. So at least 37 people are dead in southeastern Kentucky after terrible flooding hit the region. The storms occurred on Wednesday, overnight on Wednesday, and and additional rain fell over the weekend. Uh, The places that were most directly hit include Letcher Knot, Perry, Breathitt, Clay, Leslie, and Floyd counties, which is really right there um, in southeastern Kentucky, uh, Tennessee, Virginia border area. uh, That that part uh, of the state is the places that saw the worst devastation. The images, which I'm sure you've seen many from the storm, were really harrowing and tragic. You know, we saw people taking shelter on roofs, clinging to trees, you know, resting in, in muddy clothes and makeshift shelters. You know, I old women on mattresses that are soaked through with, with disgusting water. I mean, it's just like these, these really yeah. just heart-wrenching images of our, our, our Kentucky neighbors. Um, and, and, you know, um, uh, th- those have been, been really tough to watch. Um, and we've also seen uh, some people being rescued by boats and jet skis and helicopters. There are these uh, other stories that go along with, with stuff like this, these natural disasters, which kind of show you know, just the utter devastation and also just the hero, heroism of, of everyday people. You know, we did see some first responders uh, doing really heroic deeds over the weekend, firefighters, National Guard, other other rescuers. Um, but, you know, to me, the things that stick out the most are, are, are neighbors helping neighbors. Uh, you know, th- those pictures of people, you know, rowing out in, in boats or, or riding jet skis or taking their motorboats uh, and, and pulling people off of roofs and out of trees and stuff like that. 
Um, and, and then also just of Kentuckians from other parts of the state heading out to southeastern Kentucky to help out the people who are in need. I, I saw a story in the New York Times about the mayor of Bremen, which is a town that was hit by the tornadoes, you know, just not even a year ago, um, you know, heading to Heinemann in Knott County to return the favor because folks from Heinemann had come to, to their community back in December. So, you know, stuff like that, uh, inspirational uh, in the mom- in the midst of this really horrendous tragedy. But there have been really terrible stories about people we've lost. I mean, to me, the worst one, and none of, I mean, they're all they're all just utterly devastating for the people impacted. But to me, the worst one that I read was the story of four children being swept away as their parents clung to a tree as floodwaters rushed past them. It's just the most devastating thing I could imagine happening. I, I just, just, I, I can't even imagine where you go from there. It just, mm-hmm. I, it just hurts my heart just to even read it. Um, there, there have been lots of others, rescuers who left to go help someone and never came back, older folks who couldn't get out. There's lots of stories about heroism and neighborliness, and, and you know we don't wanna, we don't want to discount those at all. But but to me, first and foremost, this is just a horrible tragedy. I, I mean, you know, I, to me, that's that's the thing that we have to sit in right now is just the tragic nature of losing at least 37 of our friends and neighbors in, in southeastern Kentucky, and, and likely that death toll is going to rise. It didn't go up today. That's great. Uh, there are a few missing people uh, that are still haven't been reported, but but just in the nature of, of how a lot of the communities work in Eastern Kentucky, you know, you don't know until you know you you you've searched everywhere who who's who's been missing. So um, just be be thinking about the people who've lost, folks. One thing that also is just like beyond the human tragedy of this, um, just the cultural loss. Um, Whitesburg and Hindman are two of the most important cultural you know, cultural cities in the whole state of Kentucky. Whitesburg's the home of Apple Shop, which is the arts and cultural group responsible for dozens of films and other media about Kentucky culture and history and, and, and politics. WMMT, the radio station, which does a lot of awesome work, broadcasts out of the first floor of Apple Shop. It's totally flooded. Uh, the Mountain Eagle, which is a newspaper with important cultural writings, is also in Whitesburg. I, I don't know if how impacted they are, but, but I did see Apple Shop was basically totally underwater um, or really... I mean, it was a good photo, but just like a horrifying photo of of that building, which is so important to so many people, uh, standing at about nine feet of water, just really, really hits home. Uh, and then, and then Hyman, which is next door, not County, that's the home of the Hyman Settlement School. It that school itself has a long and important cultural history, uh, it, but it's also home of the Appalachian Writers Workshop, which is one of the most important, uh, uh, you know, cultural undertakings that the state has um, every year. And, and these are really important cultural sites, and they've all seen significant damage. You know, books that have been destroyed, uh, artifacts that have been damaged, all kinds of stuff that has happened that's, that's both happened to their structures and to the things that are inside of those buildings. And that the human toll is just devastating, and, and we've already talked about that. And, and the cultural damage on top of it is just another gut punch in the middle of the situation. So, you know, Jasmine, just to take a pause here, I mean, were there any moments or anything that you saw out of the floods that impacted you uh, in, in uh, uh, you know, any particular way um, that we haven't talked about yet or anything that you want to call out? No, I think you mentioned the some of the most, like, gut-wrenching things, like the, the four children that were swept away and the photo of like the grandmother like trying to like sitting on a mattress water all the way up in her house and it's all just really hard to see and look at and um, I'm glad that everyone is 
doing whatever they can to help in Eastern Kentucky. Um, but I also wish that, that, you know, our, our government officials cared about them and their struggle all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's very um, true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I saw a great there. I mean, I've been reading a lot of really incredible journalism in the midst of this again, you know, these terrible moments are, are sometimes the times in which, you know, you get, you get the best journalism. Um, and, and I did read a thing today about how like the poverty that is just stacked up in Eastern Kentucky for generations, um, you know, put the, the region at significant risk. That's, that's a big reason as to why this happened. So it's, it's, it's good that our, you know, our journalists are writing about this, but yes, I certainly hope our public officials are taking note and, uh, but at the same time, don't have a lot of, a lot of hope for that. Um, but you know, there are several public officials right now that are, are doing a lot of good work. Um, you know, we, we have, see them do their own jobs like coordinating logistics and coordinating government response to make sure that people get to safety get fed get their immediate needs met but in addition you know some of the people who are our public officials have been providing direct assistance you know i i saw a story where angie Hatton had folks basically staying inside of her home that had lost their homes i think that she was like in one of the only communities in whitesburg that wasn't you know severely impacted and, and was helping out in that way I, you know she's been giving lots of interviews that's her district she's been on the show before we really like angie um and, and she's really shown herself as a leader in the midst of this time and, and you know she she's a strong advocate for the people of whitesburg and letcher county all the time um and and you know uh, that that when, when they're in need is also when she's speaking speaking out uh governor Bashir has been working with the white house to get individual assistance for counties and, and as of july 30th breath at clay not letcher and perry counties were granted individual assistance that happened after it, there was an um, official emergency declaration so there's like a i don't know there's like a structure of these things where you have to get a disaster declared and then you can get individual assistance but that's already happened for several counties um that that assistance does open up funding for the federal government to play to pay for uh, rescue and cleanup and you know I thought it was kind of wild. The president was signing this. There's a picture of him signing it. And he's, he's got COVID, you know, he's, he's like getting up from his COVID sick bed to sign this, to sign this uh, important piece of, of, of uh, assistance legislation or assistance uh, uh, aid. Uh, so, so thank you to president Biden for that. I think um, he doesn't have symptoms. So I don't know about his COVID sick bed, you know, but what, he is in isolation. <laughs> what do they say? Uh, all the pictures of both president Trump and president Biden is like, uh, whenever the president gets COVID, they take a, away his tie and make him do paperwork <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. yeah uh that's where all the pictures are anyways yeah so Go- governor Bashir did also say that he's likely going to call a special session of the legislature to pass an aid package for the folks that have been impacted by the flooding um there have been lots of donations flowing to the state government i think that they've topped three million dollars now so i think that the the government is uh, the, the legislature is going to have a hand in how some of that gets distributed and also maybe some extra money maybe out of the rainy day fund which is deep Deeply ironic that that's what it's called. Um, maybe we should think of a better name. Uh, anyways, that we do have some money socked away in that, so maybe something com- can come out of that to help pay for some some much needed uh, rebuilding and resilience, uh, you know, strategies for that for that region. Um, Governor Bashir's been working hard. Angie Hatton's been working hard. Uh, governors from other states, the governors of West Virginia and Tennessee, both activated their National Guards to provide assistance, so that's great. And I did also see Hal Rogers and War- Ryan Quarles on the ground working hard, getting people stuff. Um, and, and I also saw some tweets from Dana 
know, Cameron, um, who went to Breathitt, not counties, at, at least at one point. So, you know, both sides of the aisle working out in the midst of this disaster. But Jasmine, I think your point's well taken. Um, these regions are in need most of the time. Um, and the, this, this type of disaster only is able to be so terrible because a, a region like this is neglected for so long. So that's really, really unfortunate. There are still a lot of needs in southeastern Kentucky. There's lots of ways to give. Uh, you know, the governor set up that relief fund that's got a lot of money flowing through it. The Foundation for Appalachian Kentucky has a fund. Um, the EKY Mutual Aid Twitter account is something I've seen. I, I This is something that I've been aware of for a long time, you know, just uh, helping people out who have specific needs. Like, you know, people uh, six months ago, like helping raise money for a family that lost their refrigerator. You know, we they, they don't have the ability to pay for that. Like, let's help these people out raising money in the fives and ten dollars. These people have really stepped up. You know, they've raised like uh, tens of thousands of dollars. And, and if you can give to those folks, I, I would, I would encourage you to do so. Um, there's lots of ways to give your money. Um, and if you're able, I, I also keep hearing the call for people and, and needing bodies down there to help do, uh, work through the cleanup. So if you're able to get your way down there and if you can find a partner, I would encourage you to do that as well. So Jasmine on that part, any, any other comments or, or anything you, you got to say about that? No, I don't have anything else to add. Yeah, just just really devastating. You know, two two just really horrendous disasters in the span of less than a year in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, really rough. You know, climate change is real. Climate change has a big hand in all of this, but also just yeah. you know we we need we need to build better structures. We need to build uh, a more resilient society here in Kentucky. That that when when stuff like this happens, which is going to happen more and more, it just isn't as devastating. Um, you know and. Uh, I hope hopefully, you know, there has been a lot of money earmarked for this from the federal government to help deal with our infrastructure needs and to help deal with our, our, you know, recovery situation. So I certainly hope that that's something that we're able to see in the near future. All right. Well, that's just really, really sad. So let's move on to something different, which is also not great. So Jasmine, tell us about Daniel Cameron and his enforcement of the abortion ban. All right. So like we talked about last week, the Jefferson Circuit Court issued a temporary injunction while the abortion ban lawsuit is pending. Um, But Daniel Cameron sought emergency relief from the Court of Appeals from the injunction entered. Um, And so basically there's a civil rule that allows this if the moving party shows um, that they'll suffer irreparable injury before the motion is considered by a panel. So um, instead, it was just considered by one court of appeals judge, and they have to show irreparable injury. Judge Larry Thompson is the one who issued this order, um, and he cited to a case that says, you know, when an injunction is sought to enforce police powers, irreparable harm to the government entity is presumed. And part of the the part of the case he cites is about the issuance of an injunction, but this is asking for relief from the injunction. So um, I think that there's a little bit of a distinction there. Um, But regardless, that case also creates a rebuttable presumption. So um, just because irreparable harm is presumed, um, that's not the end of the inquiry. The The other party, so the ACLU in this case, can show evidence to rebut that presumption. And th- the Jefferson Circuit Court thought that they um, at least showed that there was a s- substantial question on the merits and that 
the constitutionality of the two laws is, is questionable. The Court of Appeals found that there was irreparable harm, and Judge Thompson also stated that constitutionality is presumed, um, and that is true. That also comes from case law, um, but that also doesn't mean that injunction can't be issued. Um, a substantial question on the merits is all the plaintiffs needed to show. Um, and really, just for those reasons, Judge Thompson granted Cameron's motion and abortions have been halted in Kentucky. Um, and so, you know, last week we talked about the temporary injunction order and it was a 20 page opinion. Um, and this was a five page order where five and a half pages where the first three pages were just the procedural history of the case. So there really wasn't a lot of analysis here. Um, but I think, you know, <laughs> it shows that the law is what judges say it is because they can interpret things very differently. Um, and, and he seems to be saying, you know, judge Perry and Jefferson circuit court looked at the equities, you know, the harm to both parties. And, and here judge Thompson seemed to think that, um, the irreparable harm to the attorney general was greater, I suppose. Um, but there really just wasn't a lot of analysis, um, in this order. So now abortions cannot continue because Daniel Cameron is allowed to enforce the trigger law, um, as well as the six-week bill, but that doesn't really matter if the trigger law is enforceable, right? Right. Um, so I have a question about this. So Mitch Perry, the judge in Louisville, he issued, like, initially a very short ruling, basically saying that, you know, that there was a stay in the case, and then later issued, like, a much longer, like, 20-page ruling. Um, well, they were for different things. So okay. one was for a temporary restraining order, which is like an emergency um, order. And then the second one was the actual based on the hearing on the motion for a temporary injunction. Okay. So judge Perry is in Louisville and judge Thompson is in Pikeville. Um, is that normal? Does like, how do I, I thought that does it not like go to the appeals? No, it is absolutely normal. So the Court of Appeals is made up of 14 judges. Um, there's two judges from each Supreme Court district. And so um, who you get assigned to is just random mm. for these emergency relief motions. Who, If you're having a case heard where you have a three-judge panel, that's random as well. Um, so it, it's never going to be like this case came from Louisville. So a Louisville Court of Appeals judge is going to hear it. Um so Judge Thompson is a Court of Appeals judge from Pikeville, which is the second Supreme Court district. So he covers a lot of eastern Kentucky, um, and he's been there since his election in 2018. Um, he's actually up for re-election this year, but running unopposed. Um, but yes, the, the cases are randomly assigned, so it doesn't have anything to do with um, the case coming from Louisville. All right. Yeah. Good to know. Did not know that that was the way that that worked. So thank you for f informing me. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, so that's where we are now. The ACLU has appealed the Court of Appeals stay of the injunction to the Supreme Court of Kentucky. Um, and a really good point that they made in their um, argument, they said, 
Taken to its logical conclusion, the attorney general's argument would mean that a state official would automatically demonstrate irreparable harm under the civil rule anytime a law is temporarily enjoined, thereby always entitling them to emergency relief. And that that's kind of what I got from the Court of Appeals order as well. He, the judge said, yep, there's irreparable harm because um, when the government is trying to enforce police powers, we presume that. And we also presume the constitutionality, so motion granted. And and there really wasn't any other analysis other than that. So I think that order painted a really broad brush. It seemed like any time the government's asking to enforce their police powers, um, they would be able to demonstrate that irreparable harm to stay an injunction. Mm. And so... Um, I think that's a really good argument by the ACLU. We'll see what happens at the, the Supreme Court. Yep. So, Jasmine, I, I do, you know, I'm ask, I'm going to ask you to speculate, which I understand is a bad thing to do uh, on the trial court level. Uh, but, you know, this podcast is not the courtroom. I, I think it's, I mean, like I said, the law is what judges say it is. That's true. And they can have wildly different interpretation <laughs> and, <laughs> and we you know we we think we know what precedent looks like and and things like that um but as we've really seen with the u.s supreme court they can just do whatever they want they can go a different way yeah. you know um so i don't i don't know i don't know what would happen here i i think this seemed like um the Supreme Court would have to find that the Court of Appeals abused their discretion in staying the injunction. And abusive discretion is pretty deferential to the lower court. Um, yeah. So I'm not really sure which way this would go at the Supreme Court of Kentucky. And, you know, the other thing is, this is not a ruling on the merits either. So mm -hmm. this is about the temporary injunction. And so um, even if Daniel Cameron's stay stays in place and abortions can't go on. That That's not the end of the lawsuit. Right. Um, it, it's, it's incredibly harmful and unfortunate for the people who need abortion care now. Um, but we're not at the end of this. Right. Absolutely. Well, I did want to ask you another question about this, which is like, obviously, you know, judge Perry's in Louisville, which is a much more liberal city. Uh, and, um, you know, judge, Thompson's there in Pikeville, which is more conservative, especially around the issues of abortion uh, and, and cultural social issues like that. Um, do you feel like that this issue is just like completely politicized or and, and, you know, you mentioned like this is kind of a bad like the logic of it isn't sound. I mean, do you feel like it's just it's just politics inserting itself or do you feel like that, you know, th that, that that this is just the legal process and how it normally works? I honestly don't know because I don't know judge thompson's history that well mm -hmm. okay. um he he's only been on the court of appeals since 2018 before that he was a family court judge in um eastern kentucky and so i you know i know like my own experience at the court of appeals there's two judge thompson's and um if, if i'm if I have a case, I always want the other one on my panel. That's what <laughs> okay. I know. Um, but but I don't know if, if this is 
political to him. You know, I, I just don't know enough about um, his history, how he's ruled in certain cases and things like that. So I think that's a really tough question. Gotcha. Um, so one other thing I wanted to, I guess this is kind of a quick hit to talk about because it's somewhat related news. Deborah Yetter of the Courier Journal published a story this morning about UofL suspending involvement with the EMW clinic due to complaints from Jason Nemus and Whitney Westerfield. Um, so the University of Louisville has an arrangement with EMW as a training site for residents in um, obstetrics and gynecology. And in turn, EMW provides salary support to UofL for the doctors who train them. Um, so the university is not paying the physician to perform abortions. Um, but in a legislative hearing, it, Jason Nemes and Whitney Westerfield have raised a concern about that. Um, so because of this, UofL has suspended that program. That leaves two physicians from UofL who also perform abortions at EMW unable to do so at the moment. And then it also only leaves one physician at EMW yeah. altogether. Yeah. Um, it, so that story is pretty crazy. It's awful. I mean, this story is... I mean, sort of, it's just truly despicable behavior by by Whitney Westerfield and, and Jason Nemes, which, I mean, the, the, the evidence is, is on its face very clear, which the Republicans in the legislature are very concerned that no state money goes towards funding abortion, whatever. Uh, that's their prerogative. They have the power to do stuff like that. So these, the deal that the University of Louisville struck with EMW is we aren't going to pay for abortions to be done. Our physicians are going to go to EMW. EMW is going to basically pay these physicians for providing abortion care. And then we're going to pay the rest of their salaries. And that's the deal that they struck up. And, and uh, it is in, in order to placate the Republicans and conservatives in the legislature. And instead of that being able to do its job, you know, these two men have decided to like take it out on, on two physicians and, and the hospital that's supposed to be providing education for doctors uh, around abortion care uh, and threatening all kinds of, of things. Like you mentioned specifically, you know, even if the state was, if, if the state were to go away, if abortion care were, would be able to be provided, the only person left able to provide abortions is Dr. Marshall, who's the, the M and EMW, um, the E and W have, have retired. So he's the last doctor who's able to provide uh, abortions. And, and, and these, the other two doctors basically, uh, because of two legislators who are lawyers have nothing to do with medicine, um, are, are not able to, to practice their job. And it also puts the the accreditation of the university at, at risk because in, in order to, you know, complete residency training for OBGYN care, abortion is part of the training. And that is the way in which the University of Louisville's Obstetrics and Gynecology residency program is able to attain its accreditation by striking this deal. And this puts that under threat, which, you know, puts their accreditation under threat as well. It's just truly horrendous, despicable behavior by these two people. And it's just, it's just hard. It's just hard to just sit here and, and watch happen. So, um, that's, that's the state of our state right now, uh, and it's it's just a shame. Um, both of them, you know, Representative Nemus Incident or Westerfield, have been on our show before. Uh, you know, they they they've you know 
there's been times in their pasts when they seemed like reasonable people, but I mean, I feel like in the past six months or something, that's really flown out the window for me. Uh, I don't know if you feel the same way, but it's just really, really tough to watch um, these two people basically make calls for women and doctors in the, in, in patients in the whole in the whole state. Yeah, I definitely think that they both can be reasonable and have been on the right side of certain issues, but then. For me, there's a lot of inconsistency. Yeah, and, and I guess with how they view them. Like another example is Whitney Westerveld has been very supportive of juvenile justice reform. He's sponsored most of the bills uh, that have to do with juvenile justice reform, but he also voted for the gang bill, which is, enhances criminal penalties and expands the definition of like like gang involvement. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's just an example. Yeah. And, and Jasmine, I don't know if you got a chance to watch that judiciary hearing. Um, and, and, but th- that's where most of my opinion comes from. It was, I mean, it was like Joseph McCarthy up there. I mean, it was just really horrible the way, the way that they, that, that judiciary committee hearing was held. And basically Karen Berg had to just like, you know, do what she could to, to stop these two people from, from, <laughs> Yeah, the last thing I was about to say about this was when I was reading the article and it explained kind of what the arrangement is, I'm like, this sounds like doctors who have a job and then they also have another job. And yeah. that's that was Dr. Berg's point is that they can work for the university and also have a private practice. A lot of people do that. Yeah. Um, and I mean... It's the same way attorneys can do that, too. So county attorneys can have a part-time law practice outside of working for the government as a county attorney. Um, So, Data scientists can, too. You can have a day job where you work for a company, (laughs) and you can also moonlight and do other things as your own. Makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. Well, ugh. all right. Well, anyways, uh, one other quick hit I did want to mention is is that Rand Paul, uh, you know, did not go to eastern Kentucky to see the flooding I, to the best that I could see, uh, but did uh, manage to get to D.C. in order to vote against uh, veteran health care for, uh, you know, uh, veterans who'd been exposed to burn pits, um, who, people who have really terrible respiratory issues, um, basically saying, well, there's no real way we can tell that their respiratory issues came from uh, their service uh, and, and decided to vote against it uh one of only a handful a small handful of senators so that's just something another thing to keep in mind especially um you know as you're thinking about who to help out in the campaign trail you know charles booker is is running against him so (laughs) i wanted to mention that as well all right well that's it for this part let's get to our much more enjoyable interview with kelly jones Kelly Jones is a Democratic nominee for House District 68, which stretches from Fort Thomas in the north and the Campbell-Pendleton County line in the south. Ms. Jones is a therapist and a mother to three boys, and District 68 is an open seat due to Representative Joe Fisher's run for Supreme Court. So, Kelly Jones, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we're very happy to have you here as well. We're, we're making our tour of northern Kentucky. So we're going to the uh, the eastern side of northern Kentucky today to talk to you. Um, in your biography, you say that your calendar is color-coded in so many shades that it looks like a rainbow, which that's fun. Um, but since you have, <laughs> such, you, know, you have such a busy life already that you, you said, why did you decide to add running for Kentucky House to the list of things that you're doing? 
Well, you know, um, I think I've learned in my life and uh, people, especially who have kids, learn that there's never a good time. As much planning as you do, it's never going to be the right time. Um, running for office is something I've thought about. My great grandfather was in the House of Representatives. He was in the, um, I have a lovely picture of his class from 1912, uh, J. Howard Williams. He represented Greenup County. And the story goes that he stood up for coal miner safety and then he was promptly run out of town. So I don't know if that's exactly how things went, but that was the story I was told growing up. And so that's a big legacy to live up to. And so I've always been interested in politics. Um, this year, though, you know, things kind of seem just right. There's no incumbent. Uh, we've had Representative Fisher here for 20 years. Um, so no incumbent, a non-presidential year. And something I'm very passionate about, charter schools, was coming through the General Assembly. So I was playing, paying close attention to that. And um, when that opportunity knocked, I said, I'm a disability mom. And, you know, we, we um, well, we don't rest. We jump in because yeah. we have to. Yeah, that's cool. Are you? Do you have you have Greenup County roots? Clearly, uh, I also have Greenup County roots, so that's cool. Um, yeah, awesome. Uh, and and uh, okay, so you mentioned you know your great grandfather who was in the house, um, and you said mm -hmm. you know this is something you track very closely. Is politics something that's always been something that's uh, been a passion of yours? Like, why? What is it that makes you want to run for office? Like, what is uh, what, like is that something you you said you've always kind of thought about it? What made you kind of pull the trigger this time? Um, well, yeah, I think I, I have a very um, active and outspoken mother, and I think that's rubbed off on me over the years. <laughs> um, so uh, she has always paid close attention. So I grew up paying close attention. And I think for me, um, when I realize that things are going to affect my neighbors, um, I'm the first to jump in. Because if, if it's not me, then then who will it be? And, you know, I was really nervous. I um after actually I was like, okay, I'll do it. Then I was like, I'm going to throw up. This is <laughs> the, why am I doing this? This is scary stuff, right? Jumping in, putting yourself out there. But my friend gave me a, a Voltaire quote and she said, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And so, was, so why not? I can plan and prepare forever, but that it, you know, there's no time like the present. So yeah. Uh, and, and last question about this. Um, yeah. Talk to us a little bit about the decision making process. Like, did you talk to your friends? Was it like something that, um, did, did somebody ask you to do it? Uh, were, were there like a group of people who were like, we think you'd be good for this? Or was this just something that you were like, this is the time. And then once you decided, then is when you decided you needed to throw up. Like, how did how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we actually had another candidate lined up in, um, in our count for this district and redistricting happened. So, um, so she was redistricted out. And so, so that kind of left a, um, a last minute seat ready. So, so again, not something that I was planning for, but, um, you know, when, when the need is there, um, and I, and I think that's a mom thing when the need is there, you jump in and you do it. And, um, so, so I said, yes, me, I'll, I'll do it. Yeah. It seems like a lot of things really aligned, um, for this to be the time for you. So let's talk about your district. So district 68 okay. has a distinctive suburban rural split with Fort Thomas, Silver Grove, parts of Alexandria and other small cities in the North and then more rural parts in the Southern part of your district. So uh, just tell us what you've learned about district 68 during your campaign. 
So I'm from the North part. I live in Fort Thomas. I've been here about 13 and a half years. Um, my husband was in the Navy. He did an ROTC scholarship. So we lived in Seattle and then St. Louis, and then we moved back here to start our family. But I'm from central Kentucky originally. So Richmond, Lexington, um, that's where most of my family lives now. My mom grew up in Hazard and Rowdy, and my dad's side was green up in Ashland. So uh, my father-in-law is a cattle farmer in Richmond, and that definitely, when I, when I go to the south part of the county, when I'm down in Alexandria, oh, it's like being at home. Um, it is just like Richmond to me. And I feel like when I go to Fish Fries or I'm at other community events, when I talk, I know I, there was one woman I talked to at a, a Fish Fry and I was like, oh my gosh, you're my, you're my granny. You are my granny mm -hmm. incarnate. And so um, I really identify with lots of um of those folks that live out in the southern part of the county, you know, it's more rural. Um, we focus on agriculture. But um, what I love about my district is it is so different. Silver Grove is very different. I know when I worked at community mental health, um, I had a lot of clients. I worked with kids and families. A lot of my kids were down there. That's where my son plays baseball, um, is down in that area. And, you know, I think that each one of the areas, though, is so unique. So Cold Spring has its own unique culture. Um, Fort Thomas, own unique culture, Silver Grove, it's its own, Alexandria, but there's room for all of us. And that's, um, even if you look at my logo online, I was, I wanted to be very conscious of that. So I have, you know, like a city building, a house, a school, because all of it's connected. And I think I, um, because of my experience and where I've lived and where I've grown up and moved around, I can represent all those voices. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's unique. It's different. But I think we also share a lot of the same values, no matter where we're from. We can all agree um, on certain things. That's one of my favorite pastors that I had um, at a prior church. He talked to me one time about uh, open hand and closed hand issues. And he said, you know, as much as everybody gets in fights at churches, different denominations, he said, and even within our own, you know, our own church, he said, you know, we've got closed hand issues, those things we can all agree on. And for the church, it was love God, love people, change the world. And he said, and the rest, we can figure it out. And I don't think being a neighbor, being a community member, um, you know, living in District 68 is any different. As I talk to people, I, you know, we are more alike than we are different. And I think that there are closed hand issues that we all agree on. Keep kids safe, feed them, take care of each other, help your neighbor, Make sure everybody has access to education, no matter their ability um, or their socioeconomic status. And then there's open hand issues that, you know, we may disagree, but we can figure it out and we can work together. Yeah, if you could get uh, let's feed the children into the closed hand, that would be awesome. I think that would be great. Uh, yeah, um, I'm gonna work on that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and hearing about like the differences in all of the small, uh, you know, the different cities in Northern Kentucky is something that everybody we've ever talked to that we've interviewed from Northern Kentucky ha has mentioned. It's it's definitely something that makes that region so unique and uh, yeah. in, in the whole state. Um, but yeah, Northern Kentucky, you know, it has been one of the most politically competitive, probably the most politically competitive region in the whole state recently. Um, and, you know, you're mm -hmm. running as a Democrat in a place where, you know, that's been kind of a rough sell uh, in, in recent decades. Uh, tell us, right. you know, when people find out that you're running for a Democrat, you know, outside of Silver Grove, where all your Democrats are, but it's like Fort Thomas or Alexandria, <laughs> the rural parts of the south uh, part of your district. Um, when you tell them you're running as a Democrat and these are the issues that you support, what do you tell them? What are, what are the parts that resonate the most, um, you know, the most deeply with the voters that you've spoken to in the different parts of your district? 
Right. So um, one of everybody agrees on is education. And uh, if you followed along closely, you would see the charter school bill that came pushing through. And one of the um, charters that's going to go in as a test is up here in Northern Kentucky. It's not my district. But what we know by um, looking at other states and how charters work is that once they get in, they grow and spread and and move around. So, um, and I don't think everybody quite understands how charters work and how unregulated they are and that they're not exactly just another option like a public school. So I think that's one thing. When I go up to people and I talk to them and I say, I'm Kelly Jones, I'm running for Joe Fisher's old seat in District 68, I would love your vote. Lots of times I get asked, are you a Democrat or a Republican? And if I say Democrat, they turn their chair around. Mm. <laughs> and then I just continue on and I say, <laughs> I say, well, I'm a, a therapist. I'm a mom of three and my middle son, Linus, he has Down syndrome. And I am running to make sure that he can go to school and that he has equal access to education. And I have not encountered one person that has not turned their chair back around. Education. Um, making sure that there's equity for individuals with disabilities, closed hand issue every single time. I haven't met a voter yet that does not agree with that. And then, I mean, I will say too, one of the, I think a couple of the big things that are more democratic values that, that everybody um, up here can agree on is one we just saw in Kansas last night, um, a, a state that went for Trump, but Kansas showed up to vote and say, we trust women we trust women making their own medical choices. And I've heard that from lots of um, traditionally red voters up here, especially mm -hmm. female traditionally red voters, that that is an overplay of, of the hand there, that they cannot support that constitutional change. And they're concerned about it. They're concerned about, as they should be, if you've looked at some of the right to life candidate surveys that have come out, um, that they will start going after birth control next. And so... Um, that's something we need to be a little afraid about, especially women, women and families that are planning. Um, and just for women, even as we get older, I'm not super young anymore, but lots of women use um, birth control for um, medical issues, not just for contraception. So I, so I think that's something we can all agree on up here, um, even though it's traditionally been made a red blue type of um, decision. But I, I think that Kansas showed us similar trends that I see in Northern Kentucky. And then also I think, you know, right now we are in very difficult economic times. Inflation is crazy. Shoo, gas prices sure have gone up since I got my first job at Arby's when I was 16 <laughs> and drove around for 89 cents a gallon. Um, so, you know, I think everybody supports the governor up here. We are a state, that, we are a, a district that helped, helped him win. We helped yeah, and, and helped him win. And so everybody loves, I mean, I can't keep up with the amount of economic announcements and jobs coming into our state. I mean, we've just, we've also got that, um, well, we've had the electric vehicle batteries. We've have um, Dollar General up here, Fidelity, Novellus. Um, I mean, I think it's like over 33,000 new jobs he's brought in. How can everybody not support that? And I just heard, I read the other day about the new um, glass factory, the packaging that's going into Bowling Green. OI, I think is what it's called, OI glass. And it's you know, it's going to be close to Bardstown, help our bourbon industry. And that's all renewable um, green jobs that I think everybody can get behind. Same thing with the electric batteries, too, that, uh, with the batteries that are going to help electric vehicles. So green, new jobs, well-paying jobs that are going to help families um, not live in poverty. 
I think all of those things are things that Northern Kentuckians can get behind. Yeah, it's it's encouraging to hear that education and reproductive rights are resonating with people. Also really encouraging to hear that the governor is resonating with people because yeah. he'll be on the ballot next year. <laughs> I, I do think it would be... We're going to re- get him there again. Yeah, I, I do think it would be really great to get, you know, a, a pro-abortion rights woman elected to Joe Fisher's old seat. That would be, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, well, wouldn't that be nice because... A little known fact about Joe is that he's responsible for this sweet little trigger ban we have right now. And if you look at my opponents, all his literature from his primary, he's Joe Jr. So, so I definitely want to make sure that that we have a cha- a positive change for women and families because um, that you know I trust women to make their decisions, but it's a family decision. Lots of time. I mean, these decisions um, affect entire families. Yeah, I think that kind of leads me into my next question. You're running as a mother and as a therapist. And, mm-hmm. you know, the issues you have listed on your website have to do with families and women and healthcare. And so um, how do your life experiences impact uh, the issues that you want to take to Frankfurt? Yeah, uh, thanks for reading my website. I hope you hit it a lot of times. <laughs> Go back and look. <laughs> hope you shared. Um, you know, I think that, um, all legislators legislate from their point of understanding, right? So, um, so all of us bring our own experiences, our own life experiences to the table because they shape and mold us in our thinking and our decision making. And so I think that's been a really positive change for Kentuckys that we've had more women elected and we've had more of a variety of professions um, represented. So not just uh, males, white males, white male lawyers, <laughs> our legislature mm-hmm. anymore, because they're only going to legislate from that perspective. Um, so we need more therapists. We need more disability moms. We need more teachers. We need more activists. Um, we need more people of color. We need lots of experiences because Kentucky is is not just, you know, one gender, one race, one ethnicity, one background. We're lots of those things. So, um, so I really would... I really would like to examine some of the broken systems that we have. And I think lots of those came to light during COVID. So lots of times I will promote women are infrastructure that really makes people mad when I say that out loud. But if you look at what happened during COVID, women, for the most part, especially mothers, were doing lots of the work. So we weren't just working our jobs. We were we were the full-time cooks, the full-time cleaners, the full-time, uh, lots of times the therapists. Um, and social workers Mm -hmm. and teachers. And then we were also homeschooling our kids uh, as well. I know many days I slept three hours during the pandemic a night because I I didn't have time for everything. So I think COVID really highlighted for us just how much invisible labor women do. And there was one tweet, I think I retweeted it quite some time ago, but um, somebody had made a comparison like, why like about the giving tree that, you know, Shel Silverstein book about like, basically like, mm-hmm. why does it have to end this way? <laughs> like it's basically a metaphor for what women do. And you just take all our apples and our branches and you cut it down and, and, and it ends like that. That's a really good thing to be taken advantage of um, to give until you're dead, till you're an old stump. So I want something different for women. Um, and I think that, um, you know, lots of our systems are set up and run by women. If you look at uh, child care centers, that was something else during the pandemic that was greatly impacted, trying to keep those open. Um, but we, 
those workers are some of the lowest paid workers in our state. And many of them have children. And so lots of them can't afford childcare. And that is why they work in that profession. I used to be a coach through the United Way Resilient Children and Families Program. So I would go in and coach and help in class in um, early childhood education classrooms and, and work with some of the daycare and preschool uh, teachers. And so lots of them choose that profession because that's the only way they can afford childcare for their own kids because otherwise they can't afford it. So we've got to fix some of these things. If we want women in the workforce, um, we have to be supportive of mothers. Cause again, this is our next generation of workers. So if I, when I am 80 and I'm in the hospital, if I want a nice young nurse uh, to take care of me and help me manage my blood pressure, somebody else has to have some kids besides me, right. And be able to raise them and get them education, make sure they're well-fed so that they can go on to be productive parts of our society and helpers in our neighborhoods. And if we don't support families, families are making decisions all the time not to have children or not to adopt Mm-hmm. or um, because they can't afford it. Uh, so I really would like to see that. You know, also as a as a disability mom, uh, my family is a family. We reach our out-of-pocket max almost every year on insurance. That is expensive. And, um, you know, we've got we've got to work on health care. <laughs> it, it, you know, it, your ability to pay should not um, dictate whether you can get medical treatment. Having cancer shouldn't bankrupt you. Um, these are all closed hand issues. And the same thing for therapists. If you look at therapists right now, we are in a shortage right now. I think of over 200,000 therapists to meet demand. And I was in um, a Zoom the other day talking about the great work they're doing in Owensboro, where, all you know, the hospital, the mental, the uh, community mental health facility, um, the inpatient groups, they're all working together and getting some mobile units. And it's really a national, um, a national just uh platform for us to highlight the great work we're doing in Kentucky and to showcase how these systems can all work together to help people. And I think they said in five years, it will be over 400,000 therapists short. And part of the reason is because uh, taking insurance is really expensive for therapists to do. Lots of times we don't get reimbursed hardly anything. So lots of us don't take it because we can't afford to. So we'll do a sliding scale and let people pay a little bit less. But, you know, if, if, if I'm somebody that's going to therapy for the first time, then I'm going to say, do they take my insurance? And because I don't mm-hmm. want to pay out of pocket. So all of it's, all of it's very badly broken <laughs> right now. And, and I would love to get in and yeah, turn some of, um, some of those things, um, turn them just, to, you know, move them a little to the left. Let us see them in a different light from people who are living those people who've worked in community mental health, people who have experience with insurance on both ends as a provider and as somebody who, pays thousands and thousands of dollars every year just to make sure her son can um, get antibiotics and speech therapy. Uh, so there's lots of things we can fix. And I think um, as a therapist, I would bring a really unique perspective um, to that. Yeah. yeah. Oh. I am married to a therapist. And so I'm I, speaking your language. <laughs> yeah, I, I know all about this. And, you know, my spouse definitely has struggles with, you know, determining what insurance he's going to accept, you know, what Mm -hmm. his rates are going to be, what his sliding scale is going to look like, how many clients make up in like a responsible and ethical caseload when some insurance companies aren't reimbursing you or they reimburse at a not very high rate. And so 
Um, I definitely know about the struggles with that. Yeah. Right. Right. I, I feel like the last like four or five conversations I've had with Jasmine's husband have been like centered around that. So he, yeah, it's definitely, mm-hmm. definitely like a, definitely a point of pain for a lot of therapists I know. Right. Um, right. yeah. And, and I do think that that probably is one of the answers to the next question, you know, reimbursement rates and, and especially around mental health, which is a huge, huge issue, like nationally, as well as in the state of Kentucky. Um, yeah. and you know, especially once you add in Medicaid and once you add in like chip and all the other types of, uh, um, you know, public health systems that, that Kentucky has control over. But, um, speaking, you know, we've talked a little bit in the abstract about things that you've supported and, you know, the, the, the broader kind of broad strokes. Um, but are there like more specific bills or movements or like ideas, uh, you know, that are more specific than that? Um, that would be, you know, movements that you'd like to add your voice to if you become a legislator in Frankfurt. Yeah, I think there's a few big ones. We um, missed this go around medical marijuana. Why are we missing that? Um, you know, my son, Linus, um, so I have three boys, they're ages 12, 10 and eight. And Linus is my middle kid. So I, um, with down syndrome. So I talk about him a lot because he's a big reason that I'm running. Um, and so Linus had seizures when he was nine months old. Um, very expensive seizure medication, um, that we had to get. That was, I think it was $30,000 a vial and we needed four and down, but you know, you, it's, Um, that's a wake up call. Like literally I was in there and I was like, okay, so I will, we will sell our house. We will move in with our, we will move (laughs) back to central Kentucky, you know, to get our, our child treatment. And, um, so thankfully that medication worked for him, but lots of children that have epilepsy medication doesn't work. So I have talked to lots of families that have moved to Colorado or to other States and, or have separated their families just so that they have access to medical marijuana, which has been known to treat epilepsy. Um, and done a very good job of that. So we, we're not just hurting, um, you know, I feel like that kind of gets caught up in a moral argument sometimes, but it's hurting Kentucky families. It's hurting Kentucky families with sick kids and sick relatives. And it's also hurting Kentucky families because if you look at Colorado, what they're doing with their education system, thanks to the uh, revenue that comes in from marijuana, they're doing great things to fund their schools. So I feel like that would be a win on both accounts a win for Kentucky schools, a win for Kentucky families, um, a win for the medical community as well. So that was a big one that we missed. Also legalizing gambling. We've got all these great slot machines, right, at horse tracks and around the state. And we miss a big a big chunk of revenue that we could be bringing in that would really help our state and and help fund um, lots, of, lots of things. I would love to, of course, see it going to fully funding public schools, but um, I would like so much of the money to go to fully funding public schools and helping our teachers. So I really like that. Um, uh, expanding access to preschool. I know J- uh, Representative Raymond proposed that. We see um, lots of kids fall through the cracks there. So again, my experience with Linus, because I'm going to legislate for my experience a lot and use that moving forward. And um, Linus did not qualify for speech when he went to public preschool and he was three because he wasn't low enough. He was low, <laughs> but he was not low enough. What child, what three-year-old with Down syndrome doesn't need speech therapy? I mean, that's a little ridiculous. So while I was proud of his gains, um, he needed speech therapy. And there are lots of kids like that that need services, but because of um, funding and access issues, you know, where we don't have that set up for success and we just have it set up to mitigate the, the most severe problems and not um, accelerate and uplift kids and let them be the best version of themselves because of funding. 
um, we miss a lot of kids and a lot of kids suffer. So I would really like to work with her on that. Um, the pink tax, we've got to get rid of tax on, um, on uh, menstrual items. We've got to get rid of the diaper tax. Families are struggling right now. Diapers, um, feminine products, they are all very expensive. I think that's an easy win um, and um, an easy win for half our population in Kentucky, which is women. Uh, so, so I would love to see those things. Um, you know, I really liked uh, Representative Brown's bill on restoring voting rights to felons. Um, I worked for mental health court in my internship uh, years ago. And so I would go into jails. I worked with people in recovery. Um, you know, lots of these people um, made some mistakes or maybe got caught up in some things and um, that, and, but they, that shouldn't dictate the rest of their lives. So because they're humans and they're good humans and they're good Kentuckians. And um, and so I would love to see something like that pass where we can have some of those rights restored when people have served their time and um, and, you know, um, and reconciled and and they have, a, you know, they should have a second chance to we all get second chances at different periods of time. So I would love to see that. Yeah, I think a lot of those bills that you mentioned are ones that would be popular with a lot of people, not, not mm -hmm. just the democratic base. Um, I think a lot of people support things like legalizing gambling and medical marijuana and things like that. So I think those are all definitely popular bills. We were going to ask you one more issues question, but I really feel like you covered a lot of issues. And so um, I'm going to change it up a little. If you make it to Frankfurt, you know, um, who, you know, in the legislature or any government official, would you hope to emulate or one that inspires you? Oh gosh. There's so many women in our current house that really inspire me, but I am going to shout out um, one that's not elected yet. So uh, this is a candidate in Maysville, Megan Brannon. If you don't know her, get to know her. She is a disability mom. Um, she um, has a son who is 14 and he is nonverbal with autism and, um, she needed help, um, with having a 24 hour care for him. And you can't get that in Kentucky. So unless you sign your rights over to the government, so you have to sign guardianship over to get mm -hmm. your child the help that they need. And I encountered that a lot in community mental health. That was the only option for families was to give up legal rights to their children to get them the care that they needed and deserved. So Megan's son's in Georgia right now and she has to drive down there to see him or do Zoom calls because she has other children. Um, and that's why she's running. She's another mom that said, this doesn't work for my family and there are lots of families like me. And if I don't do it, nobody else will stand up for these rights. And oh, when I met her, I get teary thinking about it. She was just, I mean, she blew me away. And so the passion that comes from her because of her life experience and how she is going to serve her community um, and, and not just touch her community, but touch so many families in the state. I think that's what legislation should be about is about this isn't just for me. I'm going to bring you along with me because all of us are in this together, caring about each other. Um, and she is someone who emulates that and says, I'm, I'm going to work myself. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to do the hardest thing. I'm going to dive in with both feet because I care about 
my family and I care about families like yours. And I think if any legislator is in Frankfurt and they don't have that mentality, then they're doing it for the wrong reasons. So yeah, that's awesome. My friend Megan. Yeah, that's so great that uh, it's it's like somebody who and somebody who we haven't met yet on the show. But if if everybody stays tuned, yeah, it's for a, a good couple of preview weeks. for a couple of weeks. <laughs> oh, really? Woo! Yeah, yeah. So she'll, she'll You're welcome. Yeah, so we you know we've got it we've got it scheduled. So you gotta you gotta keep listening and and if you folks want to hear from Megan Brannon, maybe she'll say nice things about uh, Miss Kelly Jones as well. We'll see. We'll oh. see. We'll find out soon enough. I hope so. Yeah. All right. Well. Uh, <laughs> You know, you we mentioned your website, but there's probably mm-hmm. lots of ways that people can get connected to your campaign. So why don't you tell the people about them? If, you know, if they're in your district and want to help by volunteering or putting a yard sign in or whatever, or if they're from out of district and think you're really cool and want to give you money or whatever, how can people yeah. get connected to your campaign? Yeah. So um, I would, I think, I think I resonate beyond my district because I am um, fighting the charter school fight up here. And, and fighting for education and for teachers. And I don't think that resonates just in my district, but I think that resonates across the state that, um, you know, we can't drain funds for public education to um, let these businesses pop up that are unregulated and that are going to eventually, um, you know, hurt, hurt some of the uh, wonderful things that, that make our schools so special and help our community center around our schools. So, um, you know, we can't get rid of the arts. We can't get rid of extracurriculars. We can't get rid of aids and special education because of, of funding. So I, I feel like I'm not just fighting for my district, but I feel like I'm fighting for teachers across the state as well and families across the state who love their public schools and want to fund them and see them thrive and succeed. So if you want to learn more about me, you can go to my website, www.kellyjonesforkentucky. Uh, well, it's 4KY.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at Love Your Neighbor 68 for the 68th district, and that's L U V U R Neighbor 68. Um, I'm on Facebook at Kelly Jones for um, KY as well. If you want to email me, you can um, admin at Kelly Jones for KY.com, and I'll gladly respond and plug you in. I need door knockers. I do need monetary funds. I need help, um, you know. Yard signs aren't cheap. T-shirts aren't cheap. Uh, printed materials to leave with voters and to send out to get my messaging out. It's not cheap. Um, running for office, that's something I tell people. I am not a regular candidate. You know, I'm somebody that's middle class. I'm a, you know, we're a working family. And, you know, it's expensive to run for office. And um, it's time consuming, too. So I would love your money and your time and your support. So even if your support right now is just retweeting or liking something um, to, to get it out to your own social media audience, that's helpful too, because I only know so many people and my friends only know so many people. But if, if each of us shares it, then, you know, maybe 10 or 15 more eyes get their, um, can see some of my messaging and some of those closed hand issues that I think all of us can agree on. So those are ways to, to get involved. Um, you can always direct message me too on social media. I'm pretty good about responding. Um, and if not, then send me a nasty gram and say, you didn't respond yet. <laughs> All right. Well, Kelly Jones, thank you so much for joining us today. We really do appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. They can like our Facebook page and 
listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Friday mornings with our show notes. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Demcast network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week.